Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 18 with Dr. Patricia Rush. You took an interest early in your career on childhood trauma. Why was that? So um, my interest really was in understanding chronic illness and trying to get to the root of chronic illness led me, unfortunately, to childhood trauma. So you found that your patients with early onset severe chronic diseases, what they all had childhood trauma. Right. I mean, I was shocked. Over eight years, I did over 500 interviews. And what I found was is that people who would tell me that their childhood was mostly okay, um, maybe had one, maybe two relatively well-controlled illnesses. But people who told me that their childhood was difficult, 100% had severe illness, including um, not just hypertension, asthma, diabetes, but cancer, autoimmune diseases, mm -hmm lupus, Crohn's. So when you're, when you're looking at childhood trauma, what kind of falls into that bucket? The classic things which have been studied are uh, neglect, which um, early childhood neglect at, uh, from birth till age three um, has a devastating effect because the brain can't really develop. Mm. But beyond that, the kind of traumas are uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, verbal, emotional abuse, violence in the home, poverty, racism, discrimination of any type mm -hmm. um, has a much bigger impact. If you don't feel safe and you don't feel loved, then your brain can't calm down. Mm. And so you can't sleep. And the sleep is one of the body's most important mechanisms to continually generate health or healing. Now you discovered in your practice that those folks with these really severe chronic diseases that had those childhood traumas mostly weren't sleeping well. Right. What, what was keeping them awake? Some people had a very hard time falling asleep, were afraid to sleep in the dark, um, would sleep with, try to go to sleep with the TV on. And of course, then you don't get deep sleep. Other people would fall asleep, but then wake up every hour or two, oftentimes with what we call intrusive memories, mm -hmm. which are memories of things that happened in the past that just pop into your mind and are uh, startling. So you spent part of your medical career trying to treat the numbers. Right. And, and you spent most of your medical career trying to treat the patient, trying to, to treat kind of who they were and the traumatic experiences they'd gone through, which one of those worked better? Absolutely, getting to know the patient, letting the patient come to their own appreciation of their history and their health worked 100% better. We clearly have um, a lot of patients, and I hope a lot of providers that can be blessed by that knowledge and by that approach to healthcare. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration podcast, where our goal is to help you bridge the gap between medical science and your mind, body, and spirit. In the 1990s, there were only two women hospital CEOs in public health in the United States. One of them is our guest today, and her name is Dr. Patricia Rush. 
In today's episode, Dr. Rush delves deeper into the root of chronic disease and how it is possible to control and sometimes even reverse these chronic conditions. Dr. Rush has been a mentor of mine since medical school, and she really is one of the greatest revolutionaries in our field. This is a compilation of her last 40 years of medical knowledge coming together, and we're simply blessed to have jam-packed it all into one episode. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please message or tag us on Instagram. The handle is at Medspiration. And if you've been enjoying this content, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe to our podcast and go and rate it five stars on iTunes. Leave a review and let us know which parts of our episodes you enjoy most. It really would mean the entire world to our team. And now, without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce to you one of my mentors and my greatest medspiration, Dr. Patricia Rush. Dr. Rush, before you introduce yourself, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. You and I both know that you've literally built my philosophies in medicine from the ground up. And my intention today for this episode is to illustrate how you did that and to share your work and your organization's work and how it's helped to create a new hope for chronic illness and health disparity. So without further ado, can you please introduce yourself to our audience out there? Well, thank you, Medspiration, for inviting me to talk. So uh, I'm Pat Rush. I'm a retired internal medicine doctor. Most of my career was in Chicago, and I figured out along the way that it was possible to understand where chronic illness comes from, which then gives us hope to be able to figure out how to identify what causes chronic illness and how to intervene early in order to prevent chronic illness. And so even though I'm 70, I am still working hard because it's my goal that really every physician throughout the world and every healthcare person, whether they're a nurse, social work, psychologist, physical therapist, sports trainer, whatever, should understand these basic principles because it will so much improve health for everyone. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so excited to get into it because it really revolutionized the way that I looked at medicine. And I want to start with your background. So uh, where did you do undergrad? Uh, Where did you do residency? What was your specialty? So my undergrad was uh, kind of unusual. I um, worked my way through college. I went to Northwestern in Chicago. I worked my way through college as a secretary, and I worked as a secretary in the medical school for three years. And so I was typing, copying, delivering, and I would often go with the faculty that I was the secretary for. I would go and sit in the lectures. And after about three years, I thought I could do this. I was going to school at night at Northwestern, and I changed to pre-med. So it took me six years, but I uh, hung in there and uh, graduated from Northwestern. Then I um, went to Loyola, which is also in Chicago. I was always interested in caring for the underserved. So for people with no health insurance or people who lived in poverty. So I chose a hospital in Texas, in Austin, Texas, to do my internship, which was the public hospital in Austin then. And then I 
transferred to Cook County Hospital, which is the public hospital in Chicago. And I worked there for 20 years. Wow. Now, it's my understanding. Weren't you one of the first female internists, like in Texas or something like that? So in Austin, Texas, my friend Paula and I, we were the first two women. This is 1976. Uh-huh. We were the first two women in internal medicine in the history of Austin, Texas. Oh, my goodness. Now, that's inspiration. That's so cool. What were some challenges you faced during residency? When I finished medical school, I had a public health scholarship and I needed to pay back by serving um, in underserved areas, which was totally fine with me mm-hmm. because that's really what I wanted to do. That was my mission. So I finished my residency in uh, 1980 and I needed a job. And I took a job at Cook County Hospital where I did my residency in the emergency room. And I was 30 years old, young, naive, and I had, of course, worked in the emergency room as a resident, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have any conception of how the whole system of care worked. But working in the ER back then was very unpopular, so I didn't oh, wow. have to. <laughs> I didn't have to compete um, for my job. Within six months, they made me the director of the emergency room, which I later found out was the third biggest emergency room in the United States. Oh yeah. We saw up to a thousand patients per day. Well, I can't say we saw. We had a yeah. thousand patients per day arrive. But we only had uh, the capacity for about 300 patients a day. And so when I became responsible, I started worrying about all the people that went home every day without being seen. And so that's when actually I started learning about management and learning how to think of how to organize systems of care. Yeah. Anyway, I learned a lot. I did that for six years. When I started in 1980, we only had two full-time attendings. Attendings are the doctors that supervise the residents. And when I left, after six years, we had 22 full-time attendings. We had 24-hour attending coverage and all specialties. And we also started the, I started the emergency room residency at County and also set up advanced life support ambulance service on the west side of Chicago and also helped build uh, the first modern trauma unit. So it was a very busy six years. That sounds really busy. Wow. So how long were you in training for and how did it lead you to, to Rush University? So what happened was when I was trying, when I was in the emergency room at County, which is now called Strozier Hospital, when I was in the emergency room and I was trying to figure out, okay, we have a thousand people show up every day. Who are they? This is, you have to remember, this is 1980. Yeah. So this is before computers, right? Everything was done by hand. And so there was no like data I could sort or something. So I got um, some interns and some medical students and we analyzed three days worth of paper records. So I wanted to know 
male or female, how old they were, why they came to the emergency room, and how sick they were. Because we had just also started triage, which now triage is, everybody knows what triage is, but back then there was no real system of triage. Wow. So I wanted to know, were they really sick or were they there for medicine refill or something? So these this team of interns and medical students and me went through this thousands of pieces of paper and really the the interns came to me and they said this patient has multiple problems they have chest pain high blood pressure diabetes asthma which pile do i put that person in mm-hmm. and i thought this is the first time i really thought about this because i thought they're right why are we saying this is an asthma patient or this is a heart failure patient? Why aren't we looking at the whole person? Uh-huh. And how do we prioritize? This is just from a like a medical care kind of thing. How do we prioritize which is the most important problem? Yeah. And so that's what started me thinking. This was like 1982. Where is a model of medical science that can explain how a patient can have more than one illness, which comes first, yeah, and how does, now we have something which we call like the meta, metabolic syndrome, who have both hypertension, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. But back in 1982, there was nothing like that. So this, this is what stuck in my head. How come... Medical science doesn't have a way to understand the whole person and these patterns, which we call diseases, and which came first and where did they come from. But my, you know, my bosses, the attendings, the department chairs thought this was a stupid waste of time. Why am I asking that that question? So part of it was just practical. I wanted to know, like at the beginning, believe it or not, 1980, we only had three rooms that you would consider like critical care rooms. In the thousand patients, we only had three rooms. We only had one EKG machine, one cardiac monitor, a thousand patients. So I was trying to figure out, okay, how many people a day arrive and what kind of hours, you know, when do they come, you know, early in the morning, late in the afternoon? How many spaces do I need to take care of them? How many nurses do I need trained to take care of them? And how many EKG machines? Okay. Okay. And every little piece was going and to asking for a budget increase, training new staff, developing job descriptions, all this kind of stuff. So I was, of course, trying to like get enough places for the cardiac patients and get enough space for the asthma patients and get enough space for the, you know, women in labor and et cetera. But the whole time my brain was thinking, you know, there's something deeper going on here, okay? And how come medical science, you know, I was very young, it's 32 by then, I'm very young, and how come medical science hasn't approached this? And that's the question that's still with me, you know, 38 years later, which wow. is, except now we know the answer. Yeah. But but <laughs> but 38 years ago, I did not, no one knew the answer. 
And I couldn't find anybody else who was even interested in this question. What I devoted myself to was, you know, trying to improve the emergency room, improve the services for people in the inner city on the west side of Chicago, and teach myself really how to think about these problems. So in the middle of it all, what happened was that the hospital was, um, of course, always in debt, always in financial crisis. So I decided I need to learn about healthcare financing and I need to understand because I didn't know anything. What was Medicare? What was Medicaid? All this kind of stuff. And so I enrolled. I thought I'll go to business school. So I went to the University of Chicago Business School and got my MBA in finance and strategic planning. And, And that was great because and that really helped me with understanding medical science because University of Chicago is very tough. There's no easy passes there. That's one of the the greatest institutions when it comes to finance, I believe, in in the country. So in the world. Yeah. Yeah, So so anyway, but I didn't know that. I just, (laughs) 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 Um, but what they did was they were very rigorous in making you think and making you really go and find root causes of things and look at the interactions of things. And that helped my medical thinking a lot. So anyway, from there I went and for seven years I worked for an inner city managed care organization that then got bought by Humana, uh, the Michael Reese Health Plan. Mm -hmm. And they like the fact that I had business experience and this MBA. So I was vice president for them. And that was kind of a shocking experience because I had been working in the not-for-profit area for my whole career. And all of a sudden, I'm working for one of the biggest, most serious capitalist uh, healthcare organizations. But again, it was great because they really taught me, again, they were very serious. They really taught me to understand health insurance, understand, again, how these diseases interact. And of course, they were interested in prevention. And so they really got me, again, thinking in a systems kind of way. Who were the most complicated patients? So I became an expert, also got board certification in geriatrics, which geriatrics is really not just taking care of older people, but learning how to take care of complicated people with chronic illness. So I learned from the combination of business schools and focusing on people with complex chronic illness, I started thinking, even though they would, uh, most physicians then would tell you that all these diseases, heart failure, coronary artery disease, diabetes, that they're idiopathic, they come from nowhere. And I kept thinking that that's not true. And and so we built these data systems in the insurance company where we would track individual patients and we could tell when they were becoming high risk. Okay. And so my question was, what what's going on? You know, why is this guy all of a sudden he had one disease, now he has two diseases, now he's in the hospital three times a year. What's going on in that man's body? And so, again, I had both the business side and the science side. The whole time I'm thinking, 
there's something else going on here. So then after a while, I ended up, Rush recruited me both to run Rush Medical School. They recruited me to come and run their whole aging program. Gotcha. And because by that time I was a national expert in Medicare and Medicaid, I served on, I was the only physician in Illinois for 12 years that was on the Medicaid Advisory Committee for the Care of elderly and disabled people. And so I had a lot, I had both public sector, public policy experience, business experience, and a lot of clinical experience. So anyway, I, the whole time I was doing my job, but I was all these medical questions about the medical theory was always bugging me. If we could set up a computer system that just looked at episodes of illness and we could see that certain people were getting sicker faster. And, you know, from an insurance standpoint, we're consuming a lot more resources, right? right. But if you are if you can set up a computer system that can see this, why aren't the doctors seeing it? And what did I need to learn as a physician so that I could see it. And if I could figure out that somebody was high risk, how could we then figure out what caused this intervene and prevent it? Mm -hmm. You know, from every aspect, from an ethical aspect toward the patient, from patient-centered aspect, financial aspect, system of care. You know, it just seemed like that that was the big question. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't really, yeah. it was about attending and having compassion for all these people. But really was like, what's going on here? And how come nobody's seeing it? This was the question that always kept popping up in my head. When I met you, and we actually did your course with your organization then, which we'll get into. That's what started actually peeling the layers and taught me about system sciences. And I'm so excited to share this with our audience because I feel like it's going to blow a lot of people's minds. What is system sciences? What are some core principles? So the idea of system science is, is that you have to do two things at the same time. You have to be able to see the whole and you have to see the parts. And it's a skill because, again, in, in medical school and in the way all science in the West used to be, we just focus on the part, right? We just look at, at the, you know, the eye. We would look at the lung. We would look at whatever. But in system science, what you learn is you learn to look at the whole system and the part. So, yes, if someone comes in with asthma, you have to pay attention to the lung, to the breathing, etc. But you never do that by itself. You also look at the whole person mm -hmm. and you look at what is the history of what got here. And if, for example, someone comes, let's say they've had their asthma has been pretty well controlled. And now they come to the emergency room because they have a bad attack. So yes, you have to help stabilize them. You have to improve their breathing, maybe give them fluids, maybe give them steroids. But once they get stabilized, then you have to say, what happened recently that made this get worse? You have an exacerbation of whatever disease. What happened recently? But what happened before that and before that and before that? And so 
you realize once you start looking at it that it's all completely connected. And when we say the lung, well, the lung has many different systems within it. It has certainly the airways, it has the blood vessels, it has the lymphatics, it has the nerves, and they all work together. And all of these systems are really coordinated by the brain. Mm -hmm. And so what we've found out over the years is that many of these diseases that we have thought of as a lung disease or a heart disease or an eye disease is really a brain disease. But how it works is that the, the body is continuously coordinated through signals uh -huh. sent from the brain to the body and from the body to the brain. And what goes wrong is the regulation of those signals. And so all these diseases that we have thought of as separate glaucoma, coronary artery disease, kidney failure, etc. They are all have a unified origin, which is the loss of brain body coordination. Mm -hmm. See, and that's where you, you taught us about regulation and dysregulation, right? And what the difference is. Can you delve a little deeper into what that means? First of all, very important. Mm -hmm. The brain and the body are one system. Mm -hmm. Now, right then, I separated them, right? I said yeah. brain and the body. But it's really one intimately connected system. And when everything's working right, the brain and all parts of the body are adjusting, are regulating, are sensing and adapting every 0.3 seconds. So every 300 microseconds, right? I think so, milliseconds. Yeah. Every 300 milliseconds, the brain and body is adjusting. Mm -hmm. It's adjusting to, for me to sit here and talk to you, is that my body can maintain a posture so I can sit in a chair, adapt to temperature, sounds, I'm hungry, I'm not hungry, whatever. The oh. body is constantly adjusting and regulating. And when it is constantly adjusting and regulating. Everybody feels good. You're healthy. You have no pain. All your organs are all working right. But when it turns out, we'll talk about how I found this. When you're under extreme stress or your body is out of sync with the rest of nature, okay, because sleep is the most important regulatory process. And sleep needs to be synchronized with the, the daily cycle, with the sun in particular. We should wake up when the sun comes up and go to sleep when the sun goes down. And so if we are out of sync with nature and internally with ourselves, then what happens is instead of a smooth regulation, everything gets herky-jerky, chaotic, and that's when tissues start breaking down. That's when pain occurs. That's when you develop ulcers or rashes or upset stomach, etc. And so if that's true, if what I'm saying is true, yep. which there's more and more science to Western science to support this, then what happens is is that when somebody comes in with whatever problem, chronic heartburn, asthma rashes that won't go away okay 
the first way to look at them is not as a rash or an asthma patient, but it is somebody who's out of regulation. And if you're well-trained, then you know, oh, here are the four or five important regulatory processes that are built into our bodies. Yep. So, yes, you ask them, when did you get short of breath? What kind of medicine are you taking? Same old stuff. But you also ask, what's going on with your sleep? How do you feel emotionally? Are you at peace? Are you worried? Are you afraid? Etc. And then do you have enough food to eat? Uh, how's your digestion? Are you exercising, which is also very important? Mm-hmm. Are you, you know, at least getting up and walking around, whatever? And then you start to get a picture of the whole person at the same time you're addressing the focused problem. Mm-hmm. And this is where I really got into how trauma and neurobiology connect to this. Can you tell us how the emotional wellness of a human being, how it plays a role in all this? So what I learned, just a a little important part of the story. Mm -hmm. So I was working at Rush and I had a fantastic job, you know, as vice president of the medical center. And I had all kinds of stuff. You know, I was co-director of one of their research institutes and I was in charge of the geriatric fellowship. But the whole time I had this science question bugging me, right? Which was then from, it's almost 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know, there's got to be a way, right? Here I am in this great medical center and there's all these fancy scientists. And so I started going and talking to them and saying, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to work on understanding the development of chronic illness and how one illness becomes another Uh and why certain people have all these illnesses and some people are healthy and no one was interested. Okay. I am. (laughs) No one was interested. Yeah. But there was, a miracle had occurred. The internet. Okay. Oh, wow. So that's crazy. I, I sat in my office at the medical center and I put in. So I figured out one day I was like, you know, this has got to be, this is a system. We need a system approach. And in business school, they taught us a, a systems approach to understanding a business. So I'm like, this is this is a systems approach. So I type in system, I don't think I said system science, but something like systems and health. And up pops this website for something called the Santa Fe Institute, which is a research institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and is the number one research center in the world for understanding complex interconnected systems. Wow. So this is 1998. And I said, I got to go. You know, I got to get there. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. And so I started asking around. And within a month, I found somebody who said, oh, I'll invite you to a meeting. So I flew out to Santa Fe and stayed for three days that completely changed my life. Because... There was all these people talking, not about the body, but they were talking about plant ecology. They were talking about the environment. They were talking about physics 
and other systems and patterns of interaction within systems. And I was just sitting there in the audience. I could see myself now about two thirds of the way up in the auditorium with my pad. And I thought, this is it, you uh-huh. know? Yeah. <laughs> Here's my answer. It's all connected. And they were using terms like regulation and dysregulation and signaling and crosstalk and all this stuff. So I went back to Rush and I was like, I, you know, I just went to this conference and here's what we should be doing. And everybody was like, nope, we're not doing that. So in 2000, I turned 50 Uh and I said, that's it. Okay, I'm done. I here I am, uh, one of the few women yeah. uh, in when I had worked for the county, I was one of there was two women CEOs in public health in America and hospital hospital CEOs in public health Whoa. two in the 1990s. Me and a lady in New Hampshire. And both of us got invited to the White House to a healthcare conference. That's cool. And then after that, I got recruited uh, to go work for Rush. So I, I was very lucky. I'm one of the few women physician vice presidents of a major medical center. But I realized I was never going to get anywhere because mm-hmm. everybody wanted me to just stay in my lane which was to take care of old people, which was fine. I love taking care of older people. But I was like, this is not going to make it. And I'm never going to get my question answered. Mm -hmm. So I went home and talked to my husband and I said, I want to quit. Okay. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I was making good money. Oh, I can. And I had a very prestigious job. And I had staff and fellows and this and that, you know, that worked with me. And I said, because I said, otherwise, what's the point? I'll stay here. I'll make good money. They like me, but I'm never going to get my question answered. Mm -hmm. So I quit my job and I opened up a, a solo, small, private practice on the west side of Chicago And I transferred to be on staff at a different hospital. And I knew somehow what I had figured out, okay, was that what changed people's regulation was somehow related to, at that point, what I called stress. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because trauma wasn't really, people weren't talking about trauma. Okay. But I knew, because I had been also a primary care physician along the way, what would happen would be I would be seeing somebody and their medical problems would be well controlled. And then something would happen, usually related to somebody in their family got sick or died or one man's son was uh, run over and killed. And like six weeks later, he had this, the patient, the older man had been fine. He was in his fifties. That's so, not so old, but anyway, yeah. he had this tragedy and six weeks later, he had a heart attack. And six weeks later, he went into end stage heart failure. Yeah. Just before. And that, that, and I was like, huh, you know, 
And so <laughs> I said to the cardiologist, I think this is all related to the stress from his son's death. And he said, sounds terrible, but it's got nothing to do with this. Okay. So anyway, so I thought, well, I know that this, now I know this is all, this is 20 years ago. I know it's all about regulation and dysregulation. And I'm guessing that when there's a severe shock and stress that upsets the regulation. That was my guess. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to design, I'm going to start over in terms of how I evaluate patients. I'll do everything, all the regular stuff, history, physical, lab tests, etc., medical records according to industry standard, but I'm going to take extra time to talk to them about their life. Yeah. And immediately, there was the answer. I remember the first couple patients that I saw who were all, who were women, mm-hmm. women in their 30s and 40s who had serious illness. So they come in, you know, they've got their pills to be refilled and da da da. We fill out all the paperwork. And then I sat down and said, When do you think this problem started? And people would immediately, start to tell me, well, it happened the same year my mother died. Yeah. Or it happened when some other tragedy in the family happened. I remember like the second time, the very second time when I thought the first time I was like, oh my God, this has got to be connected. Yeah, yeah. And then the second patient, when she told me and I was calm enough that I could just ask her, well, when did this happen? When did that happen? And then when did your asthma start? And then when did your diabetes start? And it makes me emotional now. I went into my office after she left. I went into my office. I closed the door and I cried because I thought, here I am. I've been in practice for 20 some years. I was vice president of a medical school, triple board certified, and all I had to do was ask. Wow. And that's that's just mind-blowing. So where did that lead you? What did you do next? First of all, I thought, well, maybe I was hallucinating. <laughs> 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 because how could I have missed it for so long? And yeah. how could all my friends, good doctors, and all these very, you know, esteemed scholars... How could we have missed this for so long? Okay. So I thought maybe I was crazy. Okay. Or this was just a fluke. Because I was on staff at this community hospital, I would have to take call and I would get, you know, four to five patients a night or whatever. And of course, if you're sick enough to be in the hospital, something's really wrong. And therefore, the chances you had trauma is pretty high. Yeah. And so patient after patient after patient. And then I learned how to plot out what's called the life course, which is, you know, how are things when you were a baby, when you were growing up, when you were a teenager, etc. When did this happen? When did that happen? And so what I realized was is that this was not a fluke. Mm-hmm. This was underlying all this chronic illness. Because at the beginning, I thought, like, how did the most interesting patients in Chicago just walk into my little tiny practice? And then what I realized was I had been seeing these patients my whole career. 
Yeah. We've all been seeing them our whole career. Uh-huh. We just didn't know how to look. Yeah. I've realized that just in my small time of actually practicing and learning. Um, because you trained me, it just it's been life-changing seeing wow, like every human being, their entire life experience is what brings them into your practice and your it brings them to you. So what they're presenting with, I mean, it seems almost intuitive now to think, you know, I need to understand this whole person and their whole life story to kind of understand how some type of disease could have manifested into many other things, right? So right. That, that, then what happened? So then what I decided was as I got more confident mm-hmm. and more skillful and people began to trust me, then people started telling me really horrible things that had happened to them. Mm-hmm. Sexual abuse, extensive physical abuse, being in foster care, being raped when they were children. And I was like, whoa, okay. I'm a primary care internal medicine doctor, and I am not trained for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I thought I, I need to get two things. I need to partner with mental health professionals. But this is 20 years ago now. So 20 years ago, um, nobody was talking about trauma, not even mental health. Okay. And so it, was, it took a long time for me to find people who were willing to partner with me so that we could have a team to support the person. And the second thing was I needed training. I actually found out about um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm. And so I went to his, in 2003 was the first time I went to his training. He recommended I join the ISSTD, which is the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Okay. And that was a whole deal to get accepted because I wasn't a psychiatrist or whatever. But anyway, so they accepted me. And then I went for a year-long training in how to do trauma interviews and trauma counseling. And then a lot of people started sending me patients, yeah, referring patients to me because they knew that I could take care of people who had both complex uh, trauma and mental illness and complex medical disease. So that was great. And that's when I started trying to figure out, well, how do I teach others? How do I develop a research uh, database that's showing all the articles? Although really it's only been since about 2012 that the basic science has really exploded on this. And again, I started back in 2000. And so I was way out there in the wilderness. Um, and I was very concerned about uh, respecting my patients' confidentiality and protecting them and trying to figure out how to help them. Now, 20 years later, I know a whole lot more. But at the beginning, I was really out there by myself. Mm-hmm. And this is such a big deal because for all of our listeners out there who've listened to Dr. Bruce Perry's podcast, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's podcast, Dr. Rush, you're the reason that I had the honor of meeting them because you took us to the Boston Trauma Conference and we, we had the honor of actually training in your program to become trauma-informed. And all, all I could say is since speaking with these great individuals, since learning from you, um, now when I do approach my patients – 
and you ask them, you know, how was growing up for you? Or um, tell me a little bit about times that were tough in your life. It's hard to unsee the things that that you taught us to look for. So how does this connect to neurodevelopment and childhood? Well, what I realized was that I realized even before, again, I had a very, I had determination, but there wasn't a lot of science. And yeah. so what I realized because of studying system science, especially through the people at the Santa Fe Institute, which I took a, several of their long distance, uh, they have a online set of courses and I took like about 10 or so from them so I could understand like how do systems make changes what do they do when they reach an obstacle etc etc so I was trying to put together really a theory mm -hmm. of how could a like an emotional shock let's yeah. say death of a parent or uh something really traumatic like if you're a child and one of your uh, siblings is is killed very traumatic and that was a common story that I heard so what exactly could go on in the brain yeah, yeah. To be the brain right so you have the experience of this shock and then your brain gets disturbed and then what how does that translate into asthma or Crohn's disease or psoriasis or whatever. What exactly is the path? I realized that I needed to learn more about the brain. And so partly through Dr. Vander Kolk and other people like uh, Dr. Alan Shore, who's in UCLA, I attended a lot of seminars. And what I realized was, is again, that this a lot of this goes back to childhood. Mm -hmm. And goes back really to what happens prenatally to the infant before they're born. And then the connection, which we call attachment and attunement, the connection between the baby and the caregiver and how actually that connection is integral to mm -hmm. the development of the brain. And then what I realized was, is that, oh, so your brain is, when you're born, you have a lot of potential, but unless you have the right kind of experiences, your brain networks don't develop. And if your brain networks haven't developed, then you're either over or under sensitized to the world. And then you encounter all these other things that happen. And if you don't have enough support, then your brain makes its own way of getting around. And so all these things that we're calling attention deficit disorder or bipolar disease or um, conduct disorder really all go back to this basic framework mm -hmm. of developing brain networks that are regulated. And if they get dysregulated, then how do they calm back down, which requires a loving, supporting, safe relationship. Mm -hmm. And if those things are there, then your body has good communication between the brain and the body. But if they're not there and your brain's always upset and you're not sleeping, then what's going to happen is your body tries to defend itself and it defends itself by triggering inflammation. Yeah. And now 
and here we are in 2000, major article just published in Nature Medicine, where the uh, worldwide consensus is, is that more than 50% of our chronic illnesses all come from inflammation. Mm-hmm. And all that inflammation comes from triggering of the brain. Again, what I was seeing back in 1982 was I was seeing people who had been triggered and who had were in an inflammatory state, but I didn't know that. I just knew that somehow there had to be this connection. This is where I began learning about the ACEs, right? How, right. how basically childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences, they can trigger chronic inflammation, right? right. So could you, could you delve a little deeper into the ACEs? We talk a lot about it on this podcast. So other people, although I was didn't know it then, but other people across the world and really other other cultures have figured this out thousands of years oh, ago, yeah. but we forgot about it in the West. Other scientists were working on the same problem, but I didn't know they were. And so there was a scientist, internal medicine doctor at Kaiser Permanente in California, Vince Felitti. And he also noticed he was working with obesity in women. But what he noticed was is that there were women who were had really gained a lot of weight, who were, you know, 300, 400, 500 pounds, and who had had tremendous um, childhood trauma. And that through they gave them kind of a very restricted calorie diet. And these women would lose the weight, but then they would immediately gain it back unless they got help for the trauma. So he convinced the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and Dr. Robert Anda to help design a study where they would look at, they ended up looking at 17,000 adults, 18 and up, who were patients in Kaiser. And they did a, had them fill out a questionnaire about their childhood in terms of emotional abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, or what they called household dysfunction, which was, did you live with someone who had mental illness or alcoholism, substance abuse, or did you, in your house, was there domestic violence? Was anyone incarcerated? They chose 10. Now, obviously, there's 30 or 50 different kinds of trauma, but they chose 10, and they created a score. So each, if you said yes to any of those adverse childhood experiences, if you said yes to any of them, then you got a score. So your score could be zero or all the way up to 10. And what they found was is that the number of ACEs, the higher the ACE score, was a rough guess of how much trauma the person had been through had a linear relationship to their subsequent both physical disease, risk of addiction, ability to keep a job, whether they were going to be disabled or not, and also whether what their lifespan would be. Because if people had six or more ACEs out of 10, on average, their lifespan was 20 years younger. Amazing. Okay. So what they found was is that adversity in childhood, Childhood outweighs 
every single other risk. Wow. They took into account questions of smoking, occupational hazard, and all that stuff. And what they found was is that childhood of adversity by far was the greatest predictor of health, physical and mental health problems. So, and that has been a great revolution. And as you know, there's people all over the country, all over the world working on this. But there's problems with the ACE study. The ACE was an study was an epidemiologic study where you took a large group of people and you ask, you know, specific questions. In clinical practice, it's slightly different mm -hmm. because what you want is you want, you aren't just the outside scientist studying this person. What we're aiming for is that, that the patient, the person, the client themselves understands, oh, when my brother was killed, that was very shocking. I couldn't sleep. I was very upset. I was worried sad about my brother, worried about me, worried about my mother. And that lack of sleep was dysregulation. And the worry started inflammation in my body. Mm -hmm. So the fact that now I have a rash or I quit having menstrual periods or I have asthma or whatever is not my fault. It's not that I'm broken. The problem is I had a terrible trauma mm -hmm. and now I need to work on. But for me to get rid of, instead of taking fancy $20,000 injectable medication, yeah. what I need to do is work on my mental health work on my sleep, starting to exercise, starting to rebuild relationships. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened in my practice, which was even more shocking than finding the trauma, was is that when I helped people come to terms, you know, it's not, you can't come to, you know, I could say, oh, yeah, you have asthma because your brother was killed or something. Yeah. That's not going to really help people. Yeah. yeah. So, because it takes time to accept that tragedy happened in your life or your family's life. And it takes time to heal, especially for people that were a witness to trauma. It's horrible. And so it takes time for people to heal. And with that emotional healing and developing regulation, then what I saw was a miracle. People's chronic illnesses would go away. Not like that, but they would go away. Mm -hmm. And so people that had horrible Crohn's disease and were maybe having 12 bowel movements a day, very painful. Then they'd have maybe eight a day. And I would ask them, if you wanted to measure how you're, well you're doing, what do you think we should measure? And people would say, oh, how much pain I'm having, how many bowel movements, how bad is my rash, whatever. I didn't mm -hmm. care what they picked. I wanted them to pick it. So if they picked this, so what I saw like with the Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease is maybe 12 and then maybe eight and then maybe four and then maybe eight again because something upset them and then maybe four and then maybe two and then gone. Mm -hmm. You never see that nope. in medical practice. Never. Yeah. So again, I thought I was crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because I didn't have the science then mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. explain what was going on in their system. And one of the most profound things that I, I began taking away from this was the fact that regulation is possible, you know, because sometimes right. 
the philosophy that disease has now come, disease has overtaken you, you need to take this medication for the rest of your life or else the disease will continue to persist versus this, the body is like a beautiful biological instrument that has the ability to re-regulate itself depending on what's going on. And that's where as healthcare providers, we can provide things that can help you regulate yourself, right? So, um, and clearly, I mean, if you're just a human being out there listening, one sounds a lot better than the other, but intuitively also, um, putting the power back in your own hands and knowing that your body has this ability, it just feels right. It, it sounded right to me when I first heard it. And now now that I've been seeing patients and I've been applying your philosophies, I, I see the benefit of even at the first visit, allowing a patient to to open up, but then saying, hey, your body has the ability to, to re-regulate itself. Like there's no limit to what we can achieve together as teammates, you know? life-changing completely life-changing so and that's you know where my next question comes in so we've talked about trauma adversity chronic inflammation chronic disease the aces and how does this relate to health equity and what i mean by that is like we look at the united states of america right and we see you might see discrimination yeah whether it's race religion gender sexual orientation gender identity and how that how that contributes to trauma, where does health equity fall in this whole entire picture? Right. So what we know is is that in America, which is an extremely race conscious culture, oh yeah. Black and brown people have more disease, have more serious disease, and die much younger. Mm-hmm. So black men die about 15 years younger than white men. And the more concentrated this racial segregation and the poverty is, it's even worse. Okay. Also, risk of premature birth, low birth weight babies, women dying related to childbirth is also out of proportion. So a black woman has three times greater chance of dying in childbirth than a white woman. Wow. And the chance of a premature low birth weight baby is four times greater in black women. Okay. Hispanic also suffer and Native American First Nation people yeah. not as badly. Okay. Transgender people probably the worst. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we could ask why would that be true? Okay. And the th- reason is in our culture it is still very difficult for people especially young adolescents and young adults to be transgender they're subject to tremendous bullying oftentimes told to leave their house so they're homeless yeah so they encounter sexual abuse physical abuse murder so discrimination of any type And also in other cultures, sexism is still alive and well in America, but much better than in other cultures. But also women in cultures where there's a tremendous power differential between men and women, women have much more health problems. Mm -hmm. So why would that be true? Is that because women are broken or people of color are broken? No. It's the same thing, which is that the experience of being under constant stress of everyday discrimination will take a toll on you. It keeps your brain 
hyper aroused, you can't sleep, you're angry, or you're ashamed, or whatever, you can't sleep. And so you don't have deep restoration and regulation through the sleep and sooner or later something happens could be you lose your job okay not the end of the world but you lose your job but if you've been in a chronic dysregulated state and all of a sudden you have no way to pay your rent or no way to feed your kids boom you know one month later you suddenly got diabetes where did that come from okay That comes from the stress. So our commitment, my commitment from having worked with inner city of Chicago for 40 years was to address health equity and to realize that discrimination, you know, causes disease and that in order for us to really have a healthy, happy, respectful culture where people can live their lives, raise their kids, and not have premature death, then we really have to attack the issue of racism. The first time I heard you speak about this, we were at Loyola, and you were doing your public speaking, and we had the honor of sitting next to you. And I remember I watched you talk about how discrimination can play a role in disease. And I had never seen a human being speak about it like you did. And I remember thinking in my head, like you are the Martin Luther King of medicine. Like I remember, I've told you that multiple times, but that was the first time I was able to make this connection. And it's giving me goosebumps right now, you know? And I, I really hope that having this conversation sparks the minds of the future generations because it's really important to understand that the state that we're in right now as a country and as a world. The way that we treat others, the way people have access to certain resources, it actually contributes to chronic disease. It actually contributes to the cost of healthcare. And that was such a beautiful way of understanding how the interconnectedness of all things, for me, for me. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, I'm really grateful to have this type of insight so early in my career, thanks to individuals like yourself. So your organization then, what what does it stand for and how is it founded and what do you guys do? So then, T-H-E-N stands for Trauma, Health Equity, and Neurobiology. And the real name is the Center for Collaborative Study of Trauma, Health Equity, and Neurobiology. Mm -hmm. And it's our goal in making good progress to create a free integrated curriculum that helps doctors and all types of medical providers, nurses, social workers, psychologists, physical therapists, etc., to learn this basic science to switch out of the disease framework into the regulation framework and help people understand where um, disease comes from and really empowering the patient and the family so that they can address what happened to them and take their power back to really regulate their life. Because I can tell you, oh, you need to do this, this, and this. But if you don't believe it and it doesn't make sense to you yeah. you're, and you're the patient, what this is a flip of the usual medical model. The usual medical model is, is that the doctor's in charge. 
The doctor makes the diagnosis and the doctor prescribes the pills or the surgery. This is a flip because this says no. The patient is the one who knows whether they're regulated or dysregulated. The patient is the one who can help identify why their brain is still so hyper aroused. And the patient is the one who can make different choices about exercise, about sleep, about stepping away from anger and developing a support network. And like you said before, it is total partnership. Yeah. If it's that I'm the boss and you're the patient receiving the care from me, it is never going to work and the disease will just progress. But if we become partners and actually the patient becomes in charge, then what happens is, is the disease goes away. It's so beautiful. And you know, one thing I've gotten used to telling my patients now is you are your best doctor. You live in your own body. You've lived in it since you were born and you know it better than I do. My job is to listen to you. Um, the, the better I get at listening and the better you understand yourself, the better our communication could be. This is teamwork, you know, right. and just giving a space to the patient where they feel like, oh, you mean I'm in control and I could, I could tell you what's going on. Like I've seen it shift the entire room. You know, and it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for you, Dr. Rush, for me personally, <laughs> and honestly, our entire organization. So for everybody out there, Dr. Rush has been training um, our board members, people in our organization. And I really do stand by then. I stand by what you guys do. So what are some goals you guys have for the future? So our real goal is to bring this to, you know, every medical school in America, every medical school in the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, I want to step back and say other cultures have figured this out thousands of years ago. Okay. Yep. Western medicine has chosen a specific type of medical science, which is based on reducing the whole to parts. You do need to look at the parts, but at the same time, you have to look at the system. That's what's gotten lost. Yeah. Okay. So what we're hoping is to spread system science regulation to every medical school, and we are doing this all for free. This is free education that we provide on our website and also by giving lectures. So the four women um, who had always worked in the public health system in Chicago, four women got together and formed our nonprofit in 2017. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've taught in probably 12 or so medical schools and talked to over 8,000 people, both doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists, physical therapists, spiritual advisors. Wow. And our goal is to really get to young doctors and to young scientists to realize there's so much more. Yeah. Because I'm coming to the end of my career. I'm not going to be rediscovering anything. Okay. But what we hope is to create really an army of young scientists and young physicians who are willing to take a hard look at the scientific method and to realize there's so much more that's out there. Mm -hmm. So my dream would be if a medical school would take this as a core part of its curriculum, because whatever medical school that is, is going to change medicine for the 21st century. Absolutely. And all these diseases that are now seen as uh, incurable, like you say, you're going to have to take this pill for the rest of your life, they are all treatable, if not reversible. 
Exactly. And so whatever medical school finally grips this is really going to change the world. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm hoping is to create, to plant the seeds, give the information away, ignite the imagination and the innovation of young doctors and young scientists to take this and apply it to their own work. Well, that's what that's what you did for me. And I know the thing that keeps me going is carrying your vision forward. You know, I, I really want to help in any way, shape or form contribute to to your work and to bring it to the world. That's my goal. I want to see that. I think you said by 2025, your goal is to have this this model it taught in every single med school. Right. And right. that's something that I feel like we should all work towards. Um, now, what if people want to join you? Um, h- how can they find you? Um, what are some ways that they can access then? So our website is www.vencenter.org. So mm-hmm. T-H-E-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.org. Mm-hmm. And you can look on there and see there's a couple short videos explaining how to find things on the website. Right now, the majority of the website is an annotated bibliography. It's divided up by trauma, health equity, and neurobiology, and then also includes a different look at some common diseases. Also, there's recommended readings, books, videos. This spring, what we're starting is a free modular curriculum where we're going to have short five-minute videos on different aspects of system science, on understanding regulation, dysregulation, on understanding the basics of trauma, how to change your approach to patient interviews, how to for providers to protect themselves so they don't get burned out or have secondary trauma. Also, how to develop therapeutic approach to give resources about regulatory exercises that can be put into place in any community. So anyway, all you have to do is click on there and go deeply. There's a an email address. If you want to email me, I'd be happy to uh, respond. We're totally self-funded. We don't have any grants. We did this Uh, We're determined, so we did this on our own. So I'm also the secretary and the webmaster, so I don't necessarily can't do everything all at once, but uh, we're very committed to people that want to help. Well, we're going to help you guys launch your social media aspect of things. If you guys follow us on Medspiration, um, we're going to make sure that when you guys do launch all these wonderful programs, we're going to be there letting our audience know because I want medical professionals and just individuals who are curious about science to have access to this. And the fact that you guys are doing this for free, uh, one of the things that I've learned from you, your selflessness and what you want to do is this hasn't you haven't made this about yourself. You've really made this about, listen, this this information needs to get out in any way that it can. I want to make sure that it does. Uh, that was something that really attracted me to to your work, you know. So I just want to acknowledge you, Dr. Rush. Um, you've changed my life, and I'm so grateful for you. So I hope and I pray that this this podcast episode is just one of many ways that you reach millions and that you're able to keep spreading this message because it's a it's a much needed message in today's society thanks very much 
Awesome. So, Dr. Rush, before we close off on our segment here, uh, we do ask one question. We ask one question to every single individual who's ever been on our podcast. And that is, when you first heard the the word medspiration, what did it invoke? What was your definition? So, I would say the first thing I, I thought of was inspiration to change medicine and to be innovative and to and it seemed to me again it was not a uh, commercial approach you know any of us that are on any kind of media were bombarded all day long with people trying to sell us something and it seemed to me that you were you had a vision and you were committed to inspiring others to join that vision well thank you dr rush for Joining our podcast, thank you for being a part of my life and being one of my greatest mentors. I truly do appreciate you. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling inspired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle mentally physically and spiritually and as always you know what time it is it's time to get out there and do something med spiring